Most of you listening are aware of the tragic deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmed Arbery. According to data from Mapping the Police Violence, police killed more than 1,000 people in 2019. 24% of those killed were African American, despite being only 13% of the population. These deaths have created a historic multicultural activist movement. People are protesting nationwide, signing petitions, donating to organizations, and continuing to keep the conversation going by reposting content on platforms like Instagram. One such Instagram account called South Asian SMH made an informational post that said, if you are Desi American and your family immigrated here after 1965, you owe that to the civil rights movement. The post goes on to cite various acts and movements and emphasizes this larger point. I'm quoting from the post. Desi American communities exist and thrive due to the work of Black, Brown, and Asian activists fighting racial oppression. On this episode, I'll be talking about anti-Blackness in the South Asian community. This episode is structured a little differently than some of my previous ones. I'll be interviewing Sri, one of the co-founders of South Asian Sexual and Mental Health Alliance. They're the organization that made the post I mentioned earlier on the Instagram account South Asian SMH. We'll discuss how to speak out about anti-Blackness and how to start these important conversations in our community. So Sri, you're one of the co-founders of South Asian Sexual and Mental Health Alliance, or SASMA. And your organization has a popular Instagram account called South Asian SMH. For those who aren't following your account, what types of content do you share on your Instagram and what are your goals for your platform? Yeah, Um, it's honestly our entire organization is about everything it means to be a South Asian American. And so thinking about, you know, kind of what the literature refers to and what we often operate in this paradigm of being what's called a third culture kid. So as I think you've explored before in terms of kind of that hyphen identity and what it looks like where you're taking the country of origin or your parents' country of origin um, and then also the environment that you're raised in and what your identity is um, that is, you know, takes a little bit of both of that, but it's not one or the other necessarily. It's its own hybrid thing. So we talk about Essentially, we try to talk about all the things that we were never supposed to talk about growing up. Um, And so that for us is sexual health, mental health, LGBTQ issues, and just in general, identity. And I think for that, I mean, a few different plugs in in terms of content-wise, because of the mental health focus and just kind of understanding where we are as a community at present. Um, absolutely, I mean, throughout time, we've been posting on colorism and casteism and talking about different issues and, um, you know, the impacts of sexual assault on mental health or the, you know, often hidden things that are less discussed within our communities about sexual abuse, right? All those kinds of things. Um, And then part of that is also talking about whatever is going on for us in the present moment for us as a you know collective identity um and so i think recently we have been able to i mean in a strange way i think it was as the us overall and the world i think was waking i would say back up or kind of recentering the experiences of black americans um there was an interesting time point where after the murders of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, where some folks who have been a little bit more plugged in were already incensed about that and hearing about it. Um, and at that time we posted on anti-Blackness in the South Asian community. And as we know from that point then, shortly thereafter, there was the very public murder of George Floyd and everybody seeing that as well as at that same time was, you know, the, the like Amy Cooper racist bird watching incident. And so I think it was, I really do think it was kind of a collection of all of those things happening together that brought the world, I think, to a place of 
waking up to that a little bit more. And then folks, I think, just started getting hungry and for better or for worse, turning to Instagram to educate themselves. Um, and so it was kind of a place of getting, having some opportunity to be able to help educate folks and share some information and um, be able to dialogue about these things. Cause that's our platform is just to want to bring conversation to South Asian Americans about issues that are relevant to us. Right, okay. Um, speaking of Instagram, you know, I've noticed that there's definitely this movement that's happening from a lot of different organizations where they're posting, you know, important content um, about what's happening right now. And um, your Instagram account, South Asian SMH, made a post on May 30th with the main title, if you're Desi American and your family immigrated here after 1965, you owe that to the civil rights movement. And right now, you know, I just checked and it has like more than 40,000 likes, um, has been shared probably thousands of times. I remember it being, you know, shared and reshared many times around, you know, May 30th. Can you talk about the contents of that post and explain how they see Americans benefited from the civil rights movement? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I will say, I'll shout out, we're four co-founders and um, one of our members, Trinish Chatterjee, is the one who, he's the brains behind that particular post. Awesome. Um, so I will try my best to do it justice. But overall, I mean, I think, so it comes back to this piece of we as South Asian Americans tend to experience more economic privilege than many of our Black, Latinx, Native American counterparts um, in the U.S. in terms of people of color um, and honestly even compared to some East Asian communities as well. And so I think and there's a lot and we can talk a little bit more about like quote-unquote model minority what that means and get into that but I think because of that where even though often South Asians have certainly experienced racism or discrimination or harassment those things are also incredibly common in our communities and I can talk about you know personal experiences I've had in that and I've been sure you can too um, but I think in that people especially if they come from higher class or have more educational privilege have more access that they're not necessarily plugged into our political histories in terms of why we're here and how we got here. And so when you kind of, when you dial all the way back to our history there, in terms of South Asians being accepted in the US, there's actually incredibly discriminatory policies that existed that did not allow us to emigrate and specifically excluded people based on their race or kind of these quota based systems in terms of how many folks were gonna be allowed in. Um, and there's actually a case I think in the 1800s in terms of like, that kind of, uh, in the late 1800s or so, that was a, I think, Indian, very like fair-skinned man and trying to make the argument that he's Aryan and he's white and he should be yes. allowed to That was actually in. in the 1920s. It's United States versus Bhagat okay. Singh. Yeah, the case is United yes. States versus yeah. Bhagat Singh Thind. I looked into that. Yeah. Yeah. So there's like the, there's these interesting histories that are even, you know, further back. And then it really was with the civil rights movement in 1965 and, and the protections that came from that, that opened up kind of accidentally, somewhat through a loophole, actually, that wasn't necessarily the purpose, but allowed for kind of what's considered like more quote unquote, essentially like white collar jobs, but like higher status immigration. And so that, that's thinking of um, the, the Heart Seller Act, which is, uh, and specific pr provisions within that. And so that kind of brings, opens up the door to immigration, makes it a little bit easier for folks to emigrate from other countries, and specifically makes it more so on the basis of um, studying or coming in for a high paying job, and so you have to understand that there's like the specific kind of fast track that's happened of specific folks from South Asian countries being selected in 
for immigration. Now, a big caveat to this is that that's not true for everybody by any means. And we also know that within the community, there is a lot of displacement and violence that has happened. A lot of folks are here as asylees and refugees or escaping unrest in different ways. So, you know, I, by no means is it all of a peachy story, but people have to recognize that even if you personally um, suffered a little bit more or your family comes from not as wealthy of a situation, et cetera, you get regarded in the present day in a better light than your average Black American, even though the entire reason that we were able to come to this country and you know, get those opportunities and the white picket fence, et cetera, is because of the fights of Black Americans and having this major movement that actually even allowed us the ability to consider uh, emigrating here. Right, right, okay. Um, so one of the things that I really like about your account and SASMA as an organization is you openly fight cultural stigmas. And one of those being anti-Blackness in the South Asian community. Um, what are some of the problems and biases that you know, you've experienced or that you've seen when it comes to this topic? Yeah, our whole platform is based on um, kind of like, well, A of all, let's talk about the things that the aunties and uncles would kind of say TT to in some way. Um, and that even comes to our, our own podcast is called The Brown Taboo Project of like any taboo you can think of, like we're, that's what we want to cover. Um, and so, I mean, the two, we had kind of a flood of comments and, you know, just, and people honestly clapping back and sharing some hate um, on several of our posts that were about call, like calling in South Asians to be like, yo, Eval, yeah, realize your history. Eval, you're in a specific position to act and to help change the discourse. And while we were doing that, I mean, we definitely got a lot of people who absolutely supported it and were on board and were like, it's exciting to see because we are overall still a pretty small population of the US overall. So it's exciting to see content that speaks directly to people's experiences. And they're like, okay, cool. Like this, this fits for where I'm at. And again, I've had a lot of East Asian friends and Southeast Asian friends who are also like, that's very applicable to us too. And thank you for sharing that because a lot of those tips were like helpful to talk to my family, right? And kind of call in the rhetoric that you are hearing that is discriminatory at the dinner table or at your puja or at your mosque or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, so I think it was the, the response that we got though, often the fact that different South Asians commented back saying things like, you know, my family struggled or like, I, you know, I got called all, all sorts of things or like post 9-11, la, la, la. The amount of pushback we got was upsetting, but also really highlighted the need for this work in our community. And the fact that it's not just something that we're pushing up to say the generations above us need to work on this, like it's still very present and entrenched in our current generation as well. Um, and so it does need to be targeted and intervened against on all of the levels, like within our own community, within larger discourse, within white society, within like our multicultural society, at the family level, at the policy level, on all, all of those different domains. And so really, you know, whatever feels comfortable to you in the ways in which you personally find agency to talk and learn more and, you know, act in whatever ways feels comfortable to you, but really wanting to provide people opportunities in all of the different ways to sit with and also like acknowledge, but then act on the feelings of discomfort or fear or just coming from a place of, wow, this is different for different people of color. We don't all, we get lumped in. We're not all the same. 
there's similar experiences for sure, but there's unique positionality and like take a second to recognize where you come from and then what you want to do about that or how you want to operate once you figure that out. Right. And I think like for a lot of us, we, we recognize the problems and we, we notice, you know, issues within our communities and our culture, but how, I mean, do you have any recommendations on how we can, you know, navigate or start these difficult conversations, like calling out anti-Blackness in our culture? Like how would you recommend um, starting that conversation, especially with, you know, your parents or someone who's much older than you and a completely different generation than you, um, in a way that's, you know, productive and uh, meaningful for both parties? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are so many different ways of intervening. And that's one of the really beautiful things about it is that you don't have to go out and protest necessarily if that's not what you're interested in. Um, what is important is that there are lots of different opportunities for intervention and you get to kind of pick what fits for you personally within that moment, within, you know, your own safety and security and comfort level, um, and really think about all of the different kind of levels or layers of intervention. So one thing that I like to point out to folks, and, and this kind of comes from my own background as I'm a therapist, I'm a psychologist in training, so coming from the aspect of mental health and the recognizing that racism and injustice does impact our mental health and racial trauma is a very real aspect of trauma that gets not only just what you experience personally, but can and does get passed down from generations as well. So what folks before us have experienced. And so things are gonna look a little bit different based on who it is that you are trying to target, like who you're trying to have a conversation with. So I'm gonna talk about it on a few different levels. And so the first is just kind of like on your own in terms of your own brain, what's going on for you, and just being honest really about the fact that we all have biased thoughts, that we are programmed with stereotyping. And for, in many ways, it, it serves us, it's adaptive in that our brain kind of has these shortcuts to like understand things in the world. And sometimes that gets programmed in ways that are problematic. And so recognizing for yourself like, oh, wow, I just had a biased thought about this human. I saw a, um, I saw a black coworker succeeding and wondered if they got in because of some sort of affirmative action um, strategy. Or I um, saw a group of kids walking down the street who had their hoods up and I like automatically moved away, right? So it's not necessarily the thoughts themselves that are inherently evil, but it takes recognizing that you're having that and actively counteracting that in some way, right? And so the first point is just even your own awareness and being able to monitor your own reactions that you're having and recognize when you're like, oh, I didn't love the way I reacted in that moment or that's not how I want to treat people. That's not what I stand for, right? So first is just like your own personal ecology and really getting honest with yourself about what's happening. Then I'd say kind of the second layer from that is the interpersonal. So like any of the connections and conversations and whatever that you're having. And so that can look like, you know, your family at the dinner table. That can look like colleagues at work. That can look like peers at school your friend group, et cetera. And so that takes that same idea and just expands it a notch in terms of when you hear someone say something that is a little problematic or honestly just misinformed, because I think that's often the case, then how do you develop the skill sets, right? Or honestly, I think we, you don't need to have the skill set. It's just like, feeling brave enough and feeling like this is important and by me hearing it, it is my job to say something. And I can't just wait for someone else to feel brave enough to say it. I need to figure out how I can do that. And so we also have a, a post up um, that is talking to older generations and kind of give some really concrete, specific like quotes even that you can use 
and angles that you can try in terms of how to connect with folks uh, based on what their own cultural references are. And this really is, comes back to a thing of like basic communication skills and thinking about who your audience is, you know, how you want to communicate, like what's going to make sense for who it is that you're trying to talk to. And so that's going to look different for fellows of our own generation, but, you know, folks who are South Asian versus other people of color versus white folks. Like those are all going to be potentially slightly different cultural references to get the message across. And especially as it comes to our parents and grandparents and older generations, I do think a lot of it is tapping into the experiences that they have had, you know, and using that as a source of connection and empathy to be able to like expand their thinking to include the struggle for all people of color, to include the struggle of black people and not just think of it as like, oh, my own little community or my own little bubble, my own family is who I'm looking out for. So I think, you know, really wanting to speak to religious intolerance that folks may have experienced or witness or thinking about, um, you know, what media might connect with them and showing them a clip or, you know, even the, there's a lot of like Hassan Minaj, excellent content out there, you know, just thinking through like, what might help get that message across. Right. And then there's kind of this final, like bigger systemic level. Um, and that is, I think the scary part for a lot of people of like, wow, how do I intervene to change the way this entire system was created? Um, and that again, looks a lot of ways, including donating is important and redistributing your wealth, especially if you are in a position of higher economic privilege. Um, and recognizing the history that has kept Black Americans and Native folks subjugated and having, on average, less access to wealth and economic opportunity to the present day. Um, so thinking about how you can, you know, kind of vote with your dollar, what kinds of policies or potential, um, you know, what petitions are out there. You can call different governmental bodies as well as a lot of the police departments as well. Like we still haven't seen justice serve for Breonna Taylor's murders. There's continuing information that comes out about more stories of black people who are getting murdered by the police. And so like, you know, thinking of those larger ways that you want to intervene as well, which could include protesting, could include all of those different things. Um, but really understanding that the work needs to happen on all of those levels. It needs to ha happen in your own brain, it needs to happen between friends and family, and it needs to happen on systemic institutional levels. And so interventions exist for all of those different levels, and it's important on all of those different levels. So don't feel like you can't do anything because you very much in fact can, and it takes, for social movement to happen, it takes mass shifts in consciousness and that happens by calling yourself in and calling your friends in and your family in too. Right, right. Um, one of the things that I think you had mentioned in that when talking about, you know, starting these conversations with parents or with, you know, the community, like the interpersonal, that interpersonal level, um, you know, I think one of the things you had mentioned on your website was for our older generations, um, for our parents' generation, you know, they consume media in very different ways than we do. Like they generally use WhatsApp, while we generally will use, you know, Instagram or Facebook. And the type of content on those platforms is very different. And so I think one of the things you had called out is that our generation, we're more exposed to social justice content. Um, and we've been seeing this for years, which is why mm -hmm. our perspective may be different. And I'm mm -hmm. just wondering, you know, what, what do you think is the best way for young adults to make up for this contrast in, in media content between, you know, younger and older generations? Do you think there should be some type of movement where, you know, we are putting content, um, the type of content that we see and making that, you know, go viral or stream through some of the media platforms that, you know, our parents' generation are more used to, you know, using. Yeah. 
yeah, we've gotten some fun requests of folks being like, hey, can you like turn this post into a WhatsApp so that we can, you know, sort of spread it around? And I think that's part of the thing um, of, so our platform is focused on South Asian American youth. That is what we've, you know, based ourselves on. But thinking about where those opportunities of intervention are and the resources that we can put out there to help folks with that. Um, so we got to get in on the WhatsApp forward for sure. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think to that extent, so actually shout out if anyone out there has those skills and want to help us out, let us know. Um, but I think there's a lot to be said. So I don't know if you personally had this experience, but I think uh, what's coming up for me is if you remember the Russell Peters comedy sketch that you yes. at like his hour long segment, right? That I feel like every freaking South Asian American kid of our generation saw. And I remember sitting around at dinner parties and first us, you know, like putting it on the screen and sitting around and laughing and whatever. And then I remember parents coming up and being like, what is this? You know? And we're kind of like, oh, he cusses a bunch, like crap, like they're not gonna be able to handle it. Um, and then I remember at some point my mom's kind of like sitting down and watching it with us, right? And laughing along. And so I think to a large degree, you have to kind of trust your parents. They're kind of badass. Like they moved across oceans before WhatsApp existed, before, you know, like all of these different Zoom and all that shit. Sorry, that's a lot. Um, <laughs> but like before all those things existed and they made it happen and they brought you into this world. And even if they hadn't necessarily had the same exposure or, you know, American education system or, um, even the fact that when we go to the college, for example, you get to take a lot of different courses, and that's not how most of the world, you're kind of way more tracked. And by the time you're 16, you're not getting access to kind of larger liberal arts or more, you know, exposure outside of like whatever the specific thing is you're studying. Right. That's so true. That's such a good point. Mm -hmm. And just even more exacerbated by the fact that we have media and internet and social media. And so even, you know, again, this information is very accessible to us in a way that it isn't always for older generations, but don't doubt their ability to sit with it. And, and you know, and it, it, it comes back to like, how can I frame this? How can I help wedge in with references that they will get? Um, or, you know, if, if someone like, watches a lot of Bollywood films, like how, you know, what like actors or actresses can I point to who have posted something? Or if someone's really into, you know, like the dramas or within even like our, if you're thinking about like Hindu mythology or if, you know, what, what do like different Sufis say? Like, you know, you can use the different sources that are out there because it's not like, Freaking social justice or policy movements is an American thing. In fact, very explicitly, it's not a white thing. Like it is our people who have been doing this work and drawing it back to like the impacts of colonization. And have you thought about, you know, colorism within the community, for example, and how that might extend to this rhetoric that darker is worse, how that extends to how you maybe even implicitly treat black folks. So, you know, really thinking through like, what is it that you know your own audience best, you know them. So it's like, what is gonna connect for that person? What are the ways that I can kind of bring something in that will help just even shift the conversation a little bit and genuinely give some grace. Like, don't be surprised if people actually really surprise you <laughs> and are way more um, considerate, evaluative, like have read articles, have, you know, done that work and think about what is going to work best for this person. Is it a personal conversation? Is it sending a scholarly article? Is it sending a video? Like whatever that might look like and then fine tuning it to that person and whatever the specific, what questions they might have, right? Like, okay, let me go find some facts that can help address this specific point that you bring up. Right, right. And kind of going off of this idea of bringing up these conversations with, you know, people close to you, it seems like one of the best ways to do that is to find a way to, you know, relate, like use some piece of information that they can relate to, and then kind of relate that back to 
what's happening right now. Right. Is that kind of what's what? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm wondering, because this was another thing that you had kind of mentioned on your website and to some degree, I think everyone, most people can, can relate to this where, you know, we, we tend to openly talk about, you know, racism against the South Asian community when it comes to like mocking our food or accent or religions or post 9-11 racial attacks. Mm -hmm. And I guess these are all incidences that I, maybe we could bring up as, mm -hmm. um, you know, instances where we've experienced that sense of racism. Um, but, but then, you know, you call out on your website that we rarely call, call out racism within our own communities, particularly with anti-blackness and colorism. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, like, why do you think that is? Is there a reason for that? Or is that just because we, we aren't, you know, doing that introspection, like you had mentioned in the beginning, that first level of, you know, really thinking about the biases and things that, you know, prejudices that we've kind of been um, accustomed to over time? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it comes back to this sense of, for all immigrant populations, things feel a little scary, right? Like, you have this sense of less sure footing, um, and that's true to some degree, I think, regardless of your immigration status, like even once you become a citizen of kind of this, you know, even internalized feeling of like, ooh, do I actually really fit in? Do I belong? Um, and, and I think it does come from a place of fear for most people and feeling like if I speak up about this or if I is there enough room for all of us at the table? I think it kind of comes back from that, comes back to that mentality and wanting to, you know, like I worked so hard to provide for my family and get us the shore footing that we have. And so it, is it going to in any way harm our status? Like if we speak up in any way, you know, maybe it's better just keep your head down and keep kind of plodding along. And so I think there's a few things to be said about that. A, connecting back to, like we were saying at the beginning in terms of you actually really do have a civil rights movement for most people, most South Asian folks who are here today. That's why you're here. So A, that, but it's even regardless of like, oh, somebody did something nice for me, so I'm gonna do it for them. No, this comes back to a question of basic humanity and the rights that you think that all people should have and do you have the right to survive? Do you have the right to be allowed to live your life without fear that you will be killed by the people who are quote unquote supposed to protect us, right? And do we have the right to housing and economic opportunity and healthcare and you know all of those things that I think most people, if you ask them that, will be like, yes, I do think all people have the right to those things. But I do think there's this sense of discrepancy for some folks or even like oh man I'm like the one person of color on my team is there space for another one if I speak up will they just replace me with somebody new and so I think when you're when you're trying to battle those internalized feelings and you know wanting to come from a place of actually if you've decided like I want to make some change and, and how can I do that or how can I address that Part of it is coming back to this piece of recognizing that it's, it doesn't, it's not a competition of like brown person against brown person or brown person against black person. That our liberation for all of us is tied up together. It is a collective effort. And it is not one that is easily won because we've, you know, been struggling against this for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So it does take a concentrated collective effort. And I think in some ways, actually, there's some Black feminist authors that I've read and, and connected with and thinking about some folks who frame it in the sense of like, until Black people's liberation allows for the liberation of all people. And so fighting it from that sense of like the reason that you have been subjugated to certain attacks or you know xenophobic comments or um 
you know, insults to the way you look also connects back to the same exact reasons that other people are being stereotyped and profiled and judged. So it really is like, okay, this is not just something I need to fight on or for for my own community, but this is something that's true for all of us as immigrants, as forcibly removed people, as having these experiences of like, we all are tr just trying to make it here. And so coming from that place and coming from your own source of empathy and connection and thinking about like, how can I expand my view beyond just what, you know, I'm like, looking out for my family or my community or my like little bubble and instead really thinking about it as humanity you know what are we doing where we can really bring humanity and you know taking care of the earth that we live on and like trying for all of us to be in the best most successful way possible because i really don't think unless you're truly evil like i really don't think most people in their heart of hearts are like no Black people shouldn't have lives that are any harder than we should, and we shouldn't have lives that are any harder than white people. And like, we can all kind of agree on that, I think, to a basic sense. And so really connecting back to those morals, those values, that place of let me expand my thinking and challenge myself a little bit to figure out who I am including and excluding, like who's in my in-group, who's in my out-group. And if you really can expand that to kind of a more global level of like, this is ultimately, I think the best life is for all of us to succeed and enjoy happy, healthy lives. And if you agree with that, that's your ticket. Like that's what you need to be coming back to that thought is what matters as you are trying to figure out how to intervene and how to speak up and where to when you hear folks using rhetoric like that, that's like, what, but what about our struggles? And again, I mean, there's lots of really great metaphors that have been going around, but kind of this piece of saying, um, save the sea turtles doesn't mean like F all the other marine animals, right? right? It's not saying that only one group can succeed. The point is that we can all collectively succeed. Right. And this, this concept of, you know, that we can all collectively succeed and that it's, um, you know, it's a collective effort liberation. I'm wondering if, you know, and this is something that I've noticed on social media and a lot of other platforms, this, I, there's a lot of content information about model minority and the model minority myth. Um, I'm wondering if, you know, you could, for those that are listening that aren't familiar with the term model minority, if you could talk a little bit about that and how that myth and how model minority it's problematic for you know movements like this and how it tends to pit people of color against each other sorry i had a moment there yes for sure um so the model minority refers to essentially this concept of this is the type of brown person you should be like in terms of being an immigrant or being a person of color there's a specific ideal way that you can be like a good brown person and i think for a lot of us that's very familiar to us in terms of the pressure that we get and that's a really common rhetoric of like succeeding in school you know the classic like doctor lawyer engineer you know um and like how is that going to reflect on your family? What kind of shame might that, whatever your action is that you're taking, what repercussions might there be, et cetera. And so if there's two sides of what's problem, there's like multiple ways to say what's problematic about that. First of all, if you are a model minority, quote unquote, you have to understand that part of that is a method of oppression where what you're still being told is like oh yeah I'm like the goodest of the browns but that doesn't ever mean you're gonna be white you're still 
you're still like, ooh, okay, like how can I have the highest low status position? <laughs> it's essentially what you're fighting for. And then you're like, is that really what I want to be fighting for? Uh, no, like I'm not, it's, it's coming back to the thing of like, how can black and brown people fight against each other where white people are still superior? They're still perceived as like, right, you know, white is right and like, even, you know, very inherently latently, what are the ways that white supremacist culture permeates us, again, not necessarily violently or um, on purpose, but just like one example that I use all the time is the obsession with timeliness and that being a very white value, which is like not true frickin' anywhere else in the world. Right. And so even if you think about it just like statistically, you're like, why is it that that's how we're, you know, we've become so obsessed and, and that's so ingrained. And like all my black and brown brethren, like we talk about CPT, right? Like, like color people time and IST and like all of that. And we could all like laugh about it and get it on the same level, right? So a of all thinking about how being a quote unquote model minority, you're still, you're like scrapping for the top of the base. You're still not scrapping for like the actual top, okay, A of all. B of all, that actually does really negatively impact us as well. So even for our own liberation, rejecting the model minority myth is very important because there are, and every freaking brown kid can tell you this, there are so many repercussions to that pressure to achieve and be perfect and don't look bad, don't mess it up. And like, in terms of anybody who strays, even for a second from that norm, then there's all of that guilt and shame and like, oh crap, I'm messing it up. I'm gonna bring dishonor to my family. I'm gonna, you know, like la 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 la, all of those things that come from it. And there's a lot of serious mental health repercussions in terms of depression and anxiety and suicidality that comes from that, you know, when it gets to its extreme levels. Right. So A, it's not actually, we're not actually like winning anything, achieving anything. B, it hurts us ourselves and brings these really strict narrow definitions of who we're allowed to be and what we're allowed to be and how we're allowed to act. And that is anti-liberation. Like that doesn't allow you to be a full person who is a sexual being, for example, you know, like these things that we talk about in terms of why is sexual health less discussed in our communities? Well, you're supposed to be chaste, you're supposed, you know, and it doesn't, it's, it doesn't align with the reality of like the experience of being a brown kid. And so then you're like, oh crap, I slept with someone like that's, my parents can never find out, right? Like, and, and those kinds of things, like it doesn't help you either. That's B. And C is finally coming to this place of, and it's keeping other people out. It's saying that Black communities, Hispanic communities, Native communities don't enjoy the same privileges or assumed positive intent as Asian people experience at large. And that comes back to this place of like your proximity to whiteness is what's protecting you and you're keeping other people out by trying to say, you know, like there's only this one small sliver of the pie that we're allowed to have. And it comes back to like, why are we fighting over one piece of the pie when we can have a new pie, right? And like bake this from the ground up in a way that allows us all to be our complete full selves and you're not being selected for or against on the basis of your race, because ultimately we're all humans and it's just some subtle differences in melanin and like your geographic history and hair texture and food. And we all know that none of those things make any one person or culture inherently better or worse than the other. So three big reasons why the model minority myth is bullshit and you should reject it. Right, right. That's like really, really beautifully said. Thank you for like putting it in, in such a concise and also like really approachable way because I've I've seen so many different um you know slides and information on media and um Instagram things like that and there this was I think a really nice way of just putting it all into context thanks for that um, yeah I 
I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk about it because as I was talking about it, I was like, hmm, yeah, I should write this down. Like this is your <laughs> next post. I'm realizing that some of it, even though the conversations are increasing, yeah, I haven't seen it out there in kind of that um, tied together way. So right, to put that right. There. That would that would be a really great, I think, thing to put out there for for people. I think that would be very helpful. Um, I wanted to move now to talking a little bit about. Um, uh, you know, looting and rioting. I think um, a lot of people that I've talked to and just within our community, they, um, you know, they, they don't really um, approve of the looting and rioting and um, they, they seem a little bit turned off by, you know, news reports about looting and rioting. And I'm wondering, how would you recommend having productive conversations about law and order? And I think there was a question that you had posed on your website that I, I found really striking, which was, is there a right way to protest oppression? Um, and I, you know, I just wanted to, to hear your thoughts on that because I've had some conversations and a lot of people are like, I, you know, I approve of the movement, but looting and rioting is wrong. And that's kind of been the common answer I've gotten from a lot of people. Um, and I think personally, like I've struggled to figure out like the right way to approach that question um, and help them kind of understand, you know, what's going on. Yeah, for sure. And I think this comes back to that question of like, understand your audience and what's going to connect for, for them. So one, I think the kind of always going back to this place of like, what are the morals and the values that you can appeal to that are going to connect for folks? And so I think on this one, there's A, just like overall this thing of property, buildings, cars, they don't matter, like lives matter. Can we agree on that, right? And so really starting from that place of like, why is there so much focus on a Target or a Wendy's or a cop car when those things are not human lives. And the whole point is that there hasn't been enough focus on the human lives that have been taken unjustly. And so you're not paying attention. And hey, look, now you are. Like now when I hit you in the wallet, you are. And that, I mean, speaks to just a capitalist society and, and the, the value of property and, you know, how we perceive wealth. Um, and I think there's a lot of really powerful, beautiful speeches and quotes and like, you know, things that I'm not necessarily going to get do justice to, but the one that I actually really like to point people to is Tamika Mallory's speech um, in the Minnesota like, state capitol and talking about how Genocide and violence and looting is the history of the oppressor. That's the history of the colonizer. Like, how did we get to this country from genocide and looting and raping and brutality? And like, that is literally what this country is built on. Both of the destruction and decimation of native lands and native peoples here, as well as forced removal, enslavement for generations of African peoples. Like that is literally what is the economic backbone of the US and why we're like, quote unquote, an economic powerhouse, whatever, today. So coming from that perspective of like, we learned this from you. You did this to us. This is not coming from nowhere, like there is violence in the histories and there's, there's rage and there's this frustration, right? And ha like, how does that manifest? And it's not necessarily that that's like, quote unquote, the, the right way to go about it. There isn't necessarily like, you know, as we said, one right way to go about protesting and demonstrating, but you have to understand all of the frustration and generations of trauma and injustice and violence that that comes from. And so you can like, in, in terms of taking that in context and just recognizing that like, that's not mine 
to judge. And if I, we all have that place of anger that we can locate within ourselves. And if you plug into and like put yourself in that perspective of your family members in your own generation presently being murdered with state sanctioned violence, being locked away, not having access to economic opportunity, having the black powerhouses that have happened in the past 150 years be repeatedly burned down and destroyed, like so many sources of black wealth and black excellence being violently ripped from people, people dying just because of their skin color. Like when you access all of that and the generations of that, I think almost any person with empathy can come to this place of like, okay, yeah, I can see where it would come to this like bubbling over point in that sense. And you have to also just see that like, for example, what we've seen in media coverage is that all of these peaceful protests weren't getting as much airtime. And it kind of took what is being labeled as looting and, and, and violence and like property destruction, whatever. That's what got the police to actually take this seriously and to listen and for reform to start happening and abolition and those conversations to really gain momentum. And so you're like, okay, so it actually kind of makes sense that that has to sometimes be a strategy. We have not, if you go back into the history of scholars and activists, people time and time again are like civil disobedience and nonviolent protests. Yeah, we've been trying them. That's the thing. At like a certain point, you're not listening, you're not listening, you're not listening. Like, what does a toddler do even, right? Like, I can ask and I can plead, but at a certain time, I'm going to throw a tantrum and then you're finally going to freaking listen to me. And that is unfortunate that it has had to come to this point, but it is not the fault of the people who are looting or rioting. It's the fault of the people who haven't been listening as to why that is happening at this point. Right, right. Um, there is something that I had read and that was also mentioned on your website, and this is related to the topic of looting and rioting, um, where there was a restaurant called Gandhi Mahal, which was burned down in one of the George Floyd riots. Um, mm -hmm. What happened during that incident, um, and how is the owner of this um, restaurant responding to the situation? Yeah, so this is one of the first things that happened within the week of his murder as as folks started to coalesce and organize and specific, really focusing initially on Minneapolis before it really like spread so much as much at least to other cities and, and states and countries. Um, and so, and I'll read a quote from that too of, of the um, owner of that restaurant, Urhul um, Islam saying, we can rebuild a building but we cannot rebuild a human. And coming from this place of his, he's a Bangladeshi um, restaurant owner who was, uh, you know, like their restaurant was in the path that folks were demonstrating in and their, their building was damaged within that as well. And certainly coming from a place of like, oh man, that's my family's source of income and that's upsetting, yeah. but what do I ultimately prioritize? And is it a building? Is it money? Or is it people? Is it like the actual humanity and dignity and respect and justice that needs to happen there? And like, you can rebuild a building. <laughs> you cannot bring a human back to life. Right, right. Um, for those that are like listening and haven't been to your website, I just wanted to mention that sasma.org um, is the website and that their team has put together, you know, anti-blackness resources. Um, I wanted to ask you what types of resources are available on the section of your website for those listening and, you know, want to start these conversations and need tools um, to, you know, have the courage to start these, you know, important conversations. Yeah, totally. So we have put together an anti-blackness and anti-racism um, source list. And that's a lot of it is totally crowdsourced and put it out there and like send us good stuff you've seen and 
lots of folks responding to that in terms of um, you know, Google Docs and articles and videos and Instagram posts, like all of it. So there's definitely something on there for everyone. Um, there's a lot in terms of how to understand and gain more exposure to systems of oppression, the history of racism, the history of slavery, all of those different kind of just like your background pieces and having that information. And then also like, okay, how can we actively practice allyship or the work of even like being an accomplice, like how can you take your positionality and your privilege and use that to further this movement? How can you actually be, stand in solidarity um, in this movement? And, and like we talked about before, on all of those different um, levels of intervention as well. So like on the personal, within your community, and then on the larger front, including different petitions to sign, um, donations, like places to give uh, money and to be able to redistribute your wealth, um, different organizations. There's so many out there who are doing incredible work and so how you can get connected to them and get plugged in more, as well as resource and resources in terms of like, you know, how to kind of have little conversation starter suggestions, like what you can use, um, how you can hopefully engage with people and like be able to bring that message. And we are continuing to expand that as well, um, that we will continue posting and, and updating some of those resources throughout time. And we're totally happy to receive suggestions. So if you've got stuff out there, um, our media, so uh, as mentioned, but the website is www.sasmha.org. And so you can contact us that way um, through the contact form or email us um, at southasiansexualhealth at gmail.com, or just, you know, send us, you can slide into the DMs and share something that way too, but we are looking to continue building on that and um, continue adding to those resources, so definitely let us know what's resonated for you and what's helped you, um, and we can continue to kind of crowdsource that and bring that together in a place that's going to be easy to access for people. Right, and I know a lot of people, like a lot of my friends, they, um, I think, have looked at your website and your Instagram account, and a lot of them are like interested in getting involved. And I'm wondering, do you guys have, um, you know, volunteer opportunities? Or I know that crowd, the, the list that you've compiled is crowdsourced. And so, you know, that's a collective kind of community effort. But are there other ways for, um, you know, people to get involved with SOSMA? Yeah, so that's a great question. It was one that, again, over the years we've gotten a lot, but then like recently have been inundated I with, bet. which is awesome. Yeah. Um, but so the way that we operate, we really are actually just a small organization of the four of us co-founders. Um, we recently hired an intern, so that's exciting. Um, but um, so we don't necessarily have opportunities for volunteering in that sense, um, something we've thought a lot about is like creating larger, kind of like an ambassadorship program. But also for all of us, this is literally like the second or third thing that we do. So it takes a lot to manage as well and, and just kind of wanting to balance that. But we have kind of four ways for you to get involved. If you like what we do, if you want to support our mission, here's the four things you can do. Number one, you can hire us. That's the best way to support us. Um, so we offer a number of seminars and workshops and facilitate discussions. Um, and we've done that work across the country for a number of years. Um, we are doing that virtually right now in the current climate. Um, and we're really happy to do that and to continue doing that. So number one, hire us. Bring us on to your, your college, your campus, your, um, you know, any community organization, collaborate on a grant, like whatever that might look like. That's number one. Um, number two, what you can do, you can also share your story. So we're launching a blog shortly. Um, and so we're just kind of gaining, gathering submissions for that now. So if you have just a personal perspective that you want to share, if there's anything even in terms of media, artwork, video, like any of those things that can go onto that blog to just, if you want to kind of like reflect yourself and share your story and get that out there, we're happy to do that. Um, number three is our own podcast that we have, The Brown Taboo Project, and specifically if you have content that you want to hear on that or, again, a story that you would want to 
have or you think that it could be a good contribution. Um, we also bring folks onto the show pretty often. So having that is the third way that you can get involved. Um, and then number four is just spreading the word. Like if you like what we do, share it. Cause the best way to expand our reach is really kind of that personal recommendation piece and being able to share that with your own networks, you know, follow us, share our information, um, send it to friends who you think are interested as well, share those resources, et cetera. Um, so those are kind of the four ways that you can support us and get involved. That's awesome. Okay. Thank you so much for, um, yeah, for, for the interview and for taking the time to speak with me. That kind of concludes the, the interview. Um, but yeah, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today, Sri. Of course. It was so lovely to meet you. And thanks for inviting us and offering us the space. I'm excited. <laughs>